This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello again, everyone. My name is Still Theta. This is episode four of the Not Quite Daily Show, talking about episode four of Made in Abyss. Today's episode breaks neatly into five scenes, Really, there's one very long scene, the one with Habo, and everything else is just long enough to deserve its own treatment, but this fourth scene is the longest and most important. Our ending credits show up again, so as promised before, we will talk about those today, and then we will get into our normal breakdown of goals, conflicts, characterizations, world building, theme, and then we'll do a little bit of speculation, talk about what we're watching for in the future. All right, so before we begin this episode, I have a couple of sort of housekeeping things to talk about. The first is that starting with the next episode, I'm going to change formats just a little bit. We've been doing so far what I kind of refer to as a long look at these episodes, where I actually go through every single scene individually and then go through these five elements whenever they show up. But what I want to do for the next five or six episodes is do a short look, which is going to be very similar. But instead of going scene by scene, we'll treat the entire episode as one long scene and go through these individually. We'll choose scenes that are sort of standout examples of each of these, and we'll talk about how things change over the course of the episode. This will likely result in a shorter and more streamlined show. Now, I will probably go back and do the long look again for the final few episodes of the show, but this season of my show is largely experimental. I am largely still figuring things out, still playing with format, still playing with my process, seeing what does and doesn't work. For the upcoming fall season of the anime, I want to be able to do more than just one show but I realize it's going to be impossible to do these long looks at more than one show. So I'm going to try this shorter format with Made in Abyss so I can hopefully expand the show and what I do with it in the future. The second bit of housekeeping is just to address the delay between the second and third episodes of my show. I ended up going out of town for about a week and a half, and when I returned, I sort of played host to some hurricane evacuees for a week or so, and that interfered with the speed at which I could produce a new show. Now I'm not bringing that up just to make excuses for the delay, Life does happen, but I, I do still apologize. I'm bringing it up because I want you to know that the format change for the next five or six episodes has nothing to do with this delay. This was something I was always going to do. People might like it more, people may hate it. Either way, this is what's gonna happen for the next five or six, and then we're gonna go back to the long look for the final two or three episodes. This is happening either way because like I said, the season for my show is very experimental. I've already changed a lot. I'll continue to change a lot. Really want to hone in on what is best for the show, for this format, for talking about anime in a way that you like, a way that I like, and a way that does right by the creators of these anime in the first place. So all that out of the way, let's actually go on to the episode. This episode actually begins with a recap of the very last scene from the previous episode, where Reg and Rico are descending actually into the abyss. But it's not an exact replay of the actual scene, because the narration over it is different. Now I'm going to talk about that difference and what it may mean when we actually get to theme all the way at the end of this episode, so just remember we're coming back to it. The actual first scene of this episode is Reg and Rico waking up after their first time sleeping in the abyss. Now, I'm not gonna lie, with the sort of extended out hand thing and the music they play over it, 
I had a moment where I thought something kind of terrible had happened. Especially since in the first shot you can't actually see where his arms reconnect to himself. It looks like they've actually left his body entirely. But no fear, it was sort of an ad hoc security system, and they wake up and talk about how far they've come. So to speak about goal progression in this scene, we obviously still have the very, very big goal, sort of the main goal of the series, of Reg and Rico, or at least Rico, getting all the way to the bottom of the abyss, and or finding her mother whichever happens first. They have a depth gauge which shows they've already come 820 meters down, and we know from previous discussions that this means Rico has already surpassed what was originally her sort of intermediary goal of getting to the 400 meter group. What this tells us is that the addition of Reg to Team Rico is that her goal is not nearly as implausible. He can obviously descend pretty quickly, and apparently in the dark, the goal of the very bottom of the abyss, while still very distant goal, doesn't seem quite so unattainable now. No real change in conflicts for this scene. Uh, Characterization-wise, we see a little bit of Reg's ingenuity with the whole tripwire arms thing. He does seem like kind of a natural problem solver. And he also observes the force field over the whole abyss and the effect it's having on the sunlight. I'll talk more about that in a second. I just want to point out that he made that connection immediately. Rico, of course, is jubilant over the progress they've made so far, and her optimism and excitement blocks out this whole talk about the force field and the sunlight, and also lets her ignore the fact that she's very hungry, until her body insists that she pay attention. Despite the brevity of the scene, this helps remind us that Rico can get tunnel vision, that her excitement can block out everything else. World-building-wise for this scene, like I mentioned, Greg can obviously descend very fast. We have the very first mention of a force field, which is the kind of thing I feel like we should have known by now. We don't learn much else about it. Usually force fields, oh, you know, keep things out or otherwise act as deterrents or camouflage. The only thing we get is Reg's deduction that it's amplifying the sunlight as they get lower. So it's actually brighter where they are, 800 meters down, than it was on the surface. Now, why would that matter? Or maybe a better question is, why would you do that? Well, now I've made the analogy to the ocean several times, as far as the ocean and the abyss. And in the ocean, there is this top zone called the epipelagic zone, which is basically where most of the sunlight penetrates through. It's only about 200 meters deep out of the entire multi-thousand meter depth of the ocean, so a tiny percent overall. But beyond this zone, sunlight fades very rapidly and eventually is gone entirely. Now sunlight is needed by algae and other sort of microscopic things that use photosynthesis, and that means they only exist in the zone. And the things that eat them only exist in the zone, and the things that eat them, and the things that eat them, and so on. So despite the huge volume of the ocean, most of life is still right there in the top because that's how far down sunlight actually goes. The abyss, it seems, presents the same kind of problem, so whoever created this force field, and I am guessing it's the same civilization that's behind all the relics and everything else we've run into, had a good reason to need sunlight to penetrate deep, deep into the abyss. Now the fact that our second layer is an inverted looking forest of some kind suggests that keeping those plants alive at the very least might be a good reason to do it, but it seems to suggest, to me at least, that maybe that forest is not natural that maybe in the absence of a sunlight-increasing force field, there wouldn't be enough light down there for that to grow, which may mean that the forest and things below and maybe the whole abyss did not naturally occur, but was created on purpose. Now, to what purpose? Well, we don't know yet, but this is another example of the great, great world-building the series has been capable of this entire time. Lastly in world-building is the rock arc, as Rico calls it, which denotes the sort of the 600-meter line. So they are now looking at the underside of it, and there are markings and so forth on the bottom. These may have no meaning, have no significance. It's just one tiny little detail that reminds us that there is some kind of precursor civilization here. Finally, theme-wise, I'm not so sure about this yet, but I want to go ahead and bring it up. 
We may have a new theme or thematic element involving barriers. And what I'm thinking here is that we have this mention of a force field, and then we have the obvious divisor between the first and second layers, which if they can get past, means they'll have escaped from pursuit, but also will be cut off from rescue. And this makes me start to consider that there have actually been other barriers in the show to this point. Barriers between what is known and unknown, between the past and the present, between what is truth and what is rumor. Not have to say anything yet. I just wanna go ahead and point out that we're gonna start looking for this to see if it's a pattern throughout the rest of the show. So our next scene is about attending Noriko's hunger pains. It has the two of them catching and making breakfast, discussing and then losing the star compass, and then discussing the strange envelope in Reg's pack that we mentioned in last episode would definitely be something that came up soon. As far as how the scene impacts our goals, losing that star compass may end up setting them back at some point. We don't yet know what it does other than it seems to point down, but I really suspect it's pointing at something that is deep in the abyss, and they're just so far away right now it seems to only be pointing to the bottom of the abyss. But if they get closer to whatever it is it actually is pointing to, it might suddenly become more useful. Just my theory. Now while losing the star compass may set them back, Liza's notes may set them forward. We got to see a little bit of what her notes contain earlier when Reg was sort of ruminating over what he'd read. A lot of it just seemed like interesting details to share with us. Um, only the bit about the silhouette, the thing that kind of looks like Reg and may actually be Reg, seem to have any like plot importance to them. But there might be more to the notes that we simply don't know about yet. So this may be a step backwards in our goals and then another step forward in our goals. Just, we'll see. I do think it's worth pointing out before we move on from goals that Rico doesn't make recovering the star compass a new goal. She seems to have let it go, despite how important it seemed to be to her to this point. The takeaway though is that diverging from her main goal to pursue it is not something she's willing to do. Conflict-wise in this scene, uh, we lost the freaking star compass. Now because I've seen a story or two in my time, I know we're gonna run into this thing again. It wouldn't be all over the opening and in the ending and have gotten as much screen time as it has if this was the end of it. That's just the way stories work. And that's also the reason I'm counting it as a new conflict because I suspect that while Rico is not making it a new goal to hunt it down, if they run into it again and for example, someone else has it, it might then become a goal. It might then become a distraction or a point of leverage over them or something else that trips them up on their way. I mean, that's just my gut feeling. I think somebody else that's down here is going to find it and they're going to run into them and that's gonna cause momentary conflict, major conflict, we'll just see. But it won't be just nothing. Our other conflict is, Leader is still coming for them. Assuming that note is from Leader. I'm not 100% sure on this, but we're gonna go with it. But he knew that they were leaving, for some reason doesn't stop them and simply wants to chase them down. And presumably, he wouldn't pursue them beyond the second level. Now, if all that is true, this becomes another in-episode conflict, just like Nato's sort of emotional outburst from the last episode. He and Rico boiled to a point, had a fight, and got resolved by the end of the episode. And this may be the same kind of thing. Because this episode ends with them getting to the second layer, this conflict only lasts for this episode, assuming all that is true. It just adds a little bit of haste and a little bit of conflict to what has otherwise been a kind of leisurely morning. Characterization-wise, Reg and Rico turn out to be surprisingly resourceful when it comes to making breakfast in the wild. Reg, kind of ever the trooper here, samples Rico's soup despite his misgivings and, uh, you know, turns out to be okay. And then when they discuss the letter, he once again has this kind of line of deductive reasoning that dispels the mystery of the unexpected gift. Or so we think. Lastly for Reg, and this is really important, the bit with the star compass and him trying to grab it and missing, 
shows us that he's not infallible. It shows us that Reg's obvious superhuman capabilities are not going to be the end all here. Reg can fail. He is absolutely an advantage to Rico, but he's not going to be the answer all the time. I mean, I feel like this is a great little bit of foreshadowing because Rico's enthusiasm and recklessness causes the star compass to fly out of her hand, and then Reg's normal fix-it solution to use his extendable hands doesn't fix the problem that Rico caused. I can't help but feel like this is going to happen again in the future, probably more than once. Finally, Leader is kind of characterized by the copy of the notes and the little warning, assuming this is from him. They'll talk about it a bit in the next scene, but his motives are a little bit inscrutable here. If he knew they were leaving, why not prevent them? If they're going with his blessing, why come after them? But if he doesn't want them to get away, why give them the aid of the notes? World building wise, we just have the little bit with the star compass where Reg is looking it over and analyzing it and coming to his own conclusions. He points out that it's not weighted or magnetic. And he says, I get the feeling there's some incomprehensible principle at work. Now I feel like I can guarantee that will end up being true. That whatever it is that it's pointing to at the bottom of the abyss, which I already talked about, will be some form of force or science or something beyond what we understand right now. Finally, in theme, we have this little bit from Rico where she repeats something Leader has taught her in the past. All that which is taken from the abyss will someday be returned to it, whether it be an object or a life. And then she says, the abyss is greedy like that. I've written from abyss to abyss because this reminds me very much of the saying from dust to dust. That saying itself has many layers of meaning, but it can be taken at face value simply to say that the stuff we come from is the stuff to which we return. But the other layers of meaning and uh, what she says as well kind of suggests that the abyss may be a source of life or maybe a source of truth or maybe a source of knowledge, source of energy, but that all those gifts have a price or maybe at the very least a shelf life or it might simply be an action reaction kind of thing. But the abyss is a zero sum game and for everything gained, something is lost. Like a lot of themes, we don't have enough information midway through to make these kind of guesses or to say for certain what themes for sure exist or which elements are clearly thematic, but the writers occasionally throw us a little bone like this that lets us know if we're on the right path or not. Much like the abyss as a symbol can mean a lot of things, this little statement could apply to a lot of things. I just wanted to go ahead and point that out when it shows up in the episode. Our next scene involves Rico and Reg being chased lower into the abyss, first by the prospect of Leader coming for them, and second by the silk fang, horrifying spider thing. And during all this, they discuss what Leader's little letter might actually be about. As far as our goals go, if this really is a test from Leader, which I'm not sure it is, but if it is, then their success makes all the other goals seem a little more feasible. Unlike them, Leader is not a naive babe in the woods about things. And if he is conditionally giving his blessing to their journey, then maybe it's not so far-fetched. For conflicts, we have this very brief moment where Reg seems to start to have a flashback or have some sort of buried memory force its way to the surface. They've been hoping earlier that his cave raid, that the first time he went into the abyss, might actually jog his memory. And it may be that they were on the money, just needed to go deeper. I am, however, counting this as a conflict because we have no idea what Reg's memories hold, what the nature of those memories are, or even if his own personality may be different if he remembers everything. Don't forget, Reg still has an unknown goal, some reason he came to the surface in the first place. Goals are not universally positive. He might have been up to no good and we just don't know it because he's been such a positive, affable person to this point. Anyway, we also get to see that Rico's physical limits are already being tested. She is noticeably exhausted to Reg's eyes, and then she actually collapses at the end of the scene. The difference in the two of them as far as capabilities go is likely going to cause issues. So talking about characterizations here, the thing with Leader, I, 
I don't know why I'm skeptical of this. I guess because I've pointed out that he has done some things that seem very protective. Like I do think he was wise to Reg. I do think he was intentionally keeping Rico from getting as far as she wanted to go, as fast as she wanted to get there. And with the whole story with Liza, it's clear that he's probably been watching over her all this time. So, why cut her loose into the abyss? It's obviously extremely dangerous. The only thing that makes sense to me so far is that Liza's whistle coming up, and that letter, and maybe even the message, have all sort of changed his mind about whether Rico is ready for this or not. In the next scene with Habo, this idea actually gets a little bit of support, but it could be that the whole resurrection festival and the reason it was held signal a change in leader also, or at least a change in how he feels about Rico and her own destiny. Now Rico, again, lets her excitement get the better of her. She physically collapses from exhaustion, but kind of either plays it off or actually doesn't even realize that that's what's happened to her. If you've ever been around kids, they will absolutely play themselves into an exhaustion without realizing what they've done. And this is great because it helps remind us that Rico is still just a kid. She's 12 years old. I know watching enough anime will start to give you unrealistic expectations of what children are actually capable of, because teenagers are practically always the ones saving the world. But realistically speaking, these kind of goals are way beyond the capabilities of someone who's not even a teenager yet. Finally, just pointing out that Reg's being consistent. He deduces what Leader could have done or what he could have thought, the fact that he could have figured things out. And he also covers for Rico when she obviously needs to rest and doesn't want to, and makes up an excuse that kind of forces her to pause and catch her breath. World-building-wise, the Silkfang thing. What the crap is this thing? Like, horrifying horse-sized spiders kind of seem like a lower-level boss to me, if you, if you know what I mean. What kind of things are in store for us if we go even lower? Anyway, that creature is probably a one-off. Let's not worry about it. I do want to point out when they were about to catch their first glimpse of the second lair that we once again walk past these little five-pointed white flowers. I'm going to talk about these things a few times throughout this episode because they are showing up way too often with way too much prominence to simply be a background detail. At least to me. They may just be metaphor or motif, but I feel like if I went back and watched for every instance of them, they're going to be at sort of important or maybe transitional moments in the series. I don't know. I should probably go back and watch before I make statements like that on the camera, but I do think they're going to have some kind of significance. Finally, we get our World of Children sort of guiding theme. I mentioned the playing past their physical limits part already, but they also kind of underestimated leader and what adults might be capable of or be knowledgeable of. I feel like that'll likely come up again. But Rico's also doing this thing where she's retelling the story to fit what she wants to believe about the world. The fact that she immediately leaps to the idea that Leader is testing them is kind of a naive, rose-tinted glasses view of things. Ultimately, we'll see if she's right or not, because now we have an unexpected visitor. So our fourth scene is kind of the main scene of this episode. Uh, it takes up almost a third of the runtime, and there's a lot of characterization and emotional weight to the scene. It starts with Reg and Rico being pursued by some unknown cave raider, who turns out to be Habo, but he's not actually come to capture them, as I'm sure they believed, but instead to see Reg and to help them on their way. Now, as you can tell from the board here, there is definitely a lot going on, so we're going to take our time and get through it all. Starting off with goals, there's no change or progress in Rico's big goal of finding her mother, but we actually get to understand a little bit more about it. We get to understand that it is not an unconditional goal. That is to say, it is not a goal that she will do anything to meet. Accepting Habo's help to get to the second lair and then to the seeker camp beyond that would absolutely help her in her goal of finding her mother, but she turns that help down anyway because she believes in the importance of doing it herself. Now this is partially because she does believe that Leader is testing them, 
but I think in broader terms, it helps us understand that Rico's goal is not the end all. This may come back into play near the end of the story, that there are certain beliefs or other things that she values that ultimately will make her choose to not pursue that goal or do it in a different way than we would expect. Besides that, and despite Habo's warning, Rico wants to meet this Ozen character that we'll talk about in a second, so that'll be a short-term goal. And then the fact of Habo interacting with them and then going back to the surface helps keep that goal of Rico communicating back to her friends alive. It's not a mail balloon or a souvenir, but you know Habo is gonna take word back to Nato, Shigi, probably Leader, and anybody else who has a stake in the fates of Rico and Reg. It makes them ever so slightly less alone. So moving into conflicts, we see once again that Rico is sort of at the edge of her physical capabilities, that she is not the best in shape, most endurance, athletic person, and the stresses and the strains of the abyss are probably only gonna get worse. This is a conflict that probably cannot be solved, and I'm not sure it needs to be. Something this series has done very well from the beginning is help remind us that these are children. Never letting us forget that fact changes our expectations about what we expect of them, the kind of decision-making they're capable of, the type of situations they're prepared for, and even the goals they may be capable of reaching. Rico is a child, the child's mind, the child's experience. They are completely setting us up to expect her to act like a child. Rico is going to make a child's mistake at some point, maybe at several points. And little things like reminding us that she's a child help prepare us for this, help us forgive her when she does make these mistakes, and it also makes anything they do accomplish seem that much more impressive. Now I'd say this conflict of them being pursued for leaving when they should not have is still in play. Despite Reg's advantages, Habo catches up to them. I don't know how many black whistles there are in the world, but there are certainly white whistles that are better than Habo. So it's safe to say they are not out of the woods, maybe even if they do get to that second layer. And then there's this little bit where Habo gives them a vaccine, or rather he gives Rico a vaccine, I guess Reg doesn't need it. It's supposed to help inoculate her or otherwise reduce the effects of the diving illness. And the vaccine is not something she was even aware existed. Now, I don't know if this diving illness is the curse of the abyss in a different form, or it's actually something that starts to happen to you once you get to that weird inverted forest. Either way, this is clearly something that was outside their knowledge, outside Rico's knowledge and outside Shiggy's knowledge, who did apparently a lot of the research for them. While the fact of the diving illness may be a conflict in and of itself, maybe the vaccine takes care of it, what's more troubling is this raises the specter of what else do they not know? And of course, this helps remind us that they are children. Lots of things they're ignorant about. Finally, there's Habo's direct warning. Please be wary of the white whistle Ozen. Now, we know this conflict's gonna come into play because one of Rico's goals is to meet Ozen. She's not being wary. I'm sure Reg is, but Rico is not. And Rico does kind of seem to be in the driver's seat. Despite Reg being the more capable one, it seems, certainly the one more resilient, Rico is the one driving their directions right now, and she is not being wary. So characterization is sort of the main thing going on in this scene, and it's mainly helping us understand a little better about Habo and about Rico. Now, Reg and Rico have been fleeing from pursuit this entire episode, so when Habo is chasing them, they don't even know it's him at first, but even when it's revealed it's him, they still assume that he has come to take them back. Now, I feel like this is not exactly a crazy assumption on their part. First of all, just the whole way the scene is shot, the kind of expression he has on his face, the sort of dramatic way he busts into the scene, all suggests that he's a little bit antagonistic to their goal. But more than that, since he is sort of an authority and protective figure a la leader, it makes sense that he would want to protect them and take them back. It's not necessarily like he's out to get them. I know children don't always have that perspective, but that could be the case. However, and what I actually kind of thought at first, he could have conceivably been there to take Reg. Like if the jig is up about what he is, and he is potentially the greatest thing to ever come out of the abyss, that would be quite a prize for Habo. Let's not forget he's trying to make White Whistle. He's been a Black Whistle for apparently a long time, 
but for whatever reason has never quite gotten over the hump. Well, I don't exactly know what the qualifications are, but I can't help but feel like bringing the greatest relic of all time back might be the thing that puts you over the edge. So taking Reg, revealing what he is to the guild, might let him meet his lifelong goal. Well, I'm assuming it's lifelong. I could be getting ahead of myself. Either way, the fact that he's not there to do either of those things tells us a lot about him. Now, what he gives as his reason is not what Reg and Rico thought, and not what I thought, but a desire to pay his respects to a supreme treasure of the netherworld, that is, Reg. This is kind of an interesting reveal of his mindset. It suggests that the abyss and the endeavors to plummet its depths and discover its secrets are not purely for the money derived from bringing relics up, not purely for the fame or power that comes with rising in rank, but actually some sort of awe and wonder about the abyss itself. Like there's some sort of fascination with or loyalty to or glorification of the abyss and everything in it and everything it stands for. Like clearly Rico is not alone in her sort of curious fascination with things down there. There may be something approaching mysticism that people feel about the abyss. I'm sure people are all over the spectrum when it comes to this, but it seems to me we understand where Habo lies. Now to talk briefly about Reg in this scene, his first instant when Habo shows up is to try to create a distraction so Rico can get away. Like, I think he's in sort of full protective mode around her. This is sort of reinforced at the sort of emotional goodbye at the end of the scene, and Reg sort of accepts this with a certain stoicness. He absolutely has no problem with this, no objection to it. He is comfortable with the role of protector. Of course, undermining this whole thing is the ease with which Habo catches him, lifts him up and makes him powerless, and sort of invades his privacy. Reg, it seems, is still capable of very human emotions, including embarrassment. So now to talk about Rico for a second. I mentioned already when we talked about goals, the fact that she won't accept Habo's help to get to the Seeker camp says she has other priorities that may take precedence over finding her mother at any cost. I personally think this scene is the biggest character moment for Rico we've had in the show since the Resurrection Festival. This scene and the offer and refusal of help help us understand, and maybe even her, exactly how her priorities align. She is not going to be an ends justify the means kind of person. The means matter to her. Now while I think part of this is she believes their sort of leader is testing his theory, and she obviously sort of respects and admires leader, I think what also is going on here is this idea that maybe she feels she needs to prove that she's worthy of the abyss. I mean, her original goal was to become a white whistle and follow in her mother's footsteps. It wasn't just to find her mother. The letter and the whistle coming up sort of accelerated things for her, but I still think there is this underlying need to prove herself, and she believes the abyss is something you have to be worthy of. I mean, this is akin to the same fascination and stuff I just talked about with Habo coming to pay his respects. There's clearly a sort of subculture of cave raiders that treat the abyss with a certain bit of reverence, and I think Rico clearly falls into this category. I didn't realize it at the time, but the first instance we actually had of this was in the stealing of the star compass. While it did tell us that she's not above stealing things, it's brought up in the very first conversation she has with Nato that she could turn that in and meet leader's qualification for getting considered for advancement. But she doesn't do that. She wasn't going to cheat the system. Instead, she has a kind of reverence for that star compass and whatever it is it points to. This is a very interesting new complication in her character. And I use the word complication because this is not necessarily a universally positive thing. This reverence or this need to prove herself may cause her to do some very unpragmatic things. It may make her make some rash decisions or put the both of them in danger. But when and if that time comes, 
at least you and I in the audience, will understand a little bit why she's making the decision she makes. Finally, to talk about Habo once more, the end of this scene is this lovely little emotional kind of send-off. Rico's kind of ignoring his warning about Ozen and is caught up in her own enthusiasm. And I think he's reminded that she is still kind of just a child, but one that he's letting go and try to find her place in the world. Now, nothing has specifically said this, but I have a real feeling that Habo is the closest thing to a father figure in Rico's life. Um, we had this brief flashback to where she was a much younger girl and leader's still a little boy. And there's Habo putting her up on his shoulders, letting her see into the abyss. So it seems to me he's been watching her grow up all this time. And it's hard to let someone you care about go into the world, especially if you know how capable they are of making mistakes or, or getting in trouble. And I think Habo gets a little overwhelmed by this as Rico's rattling on and simply takes both of them up in his arms and starts speaking words of reassurance. But I'm pretty sure he's talking to himself. And as they walk off, he even says he knew this day would come that the call of the abyss was always going to reach Rico. It may even be this is why he doesn't protect them, taking them back and keeping them safe from harm, that he kind of believes this is her destiny and also has this sort of mystical reverence for the abyss that he's letting them go maybe against what would normally be his better judgment. You know, letting go can be a very scary thing. And as big and capable and strong as Habo clearly is, I'm sure he feels like he's parting with a little piece of his own heart and nobody is strong enough to be unaffected by that. All in all, I think this was a fantastic scene for characterizing, especially Riku and Habo. So moving on to world building, mentioned already the vaccine for the diving illness. I don't think this is supposed to be the curse of the abyss. I mean, if there's a vaccine for it, I feel like they wouldn't have needed that giant relic to get Riku back to the surface when she was born, right? But maybe it is, maybe it's just another name for it, or maybe it's something else and we just haven't heard of it. It's beyond Rico's knowledge because it only affects you second layer and down, and she was nowhere close to uh, getting there. I'm sure that we'll find out more about it. There'll be no point in bringing it up otherwise. I think the most interesting little bit of world building is about the guardian of the seeker camp, the unmovable sovereign, Ozen the Immovable. Unmovable, immovable. Inflammable means flammable? What a country. I don't know if those are titles or nicknames or what's going on there, but I think it's pretty interesting to find out that there's a white whistle pretty nearby, it seems, that this person was involved in getting Rico back to the surface 12 years ago, and that she was the person who had Liza's letter and whistle. And on top of all of that, she's someone to be wary of. Like, if you wanted to give me a lot of information to make me super curious about what's next in the series, this was a really good start. And then finally, from Habo's little flashback there, we learn that he's probably always been a fixture in Rico's life, at least from the time of that memory. Uh, Rico looks like she might be, I don't know, three or four in this image. And what's also interesting is that he is a black whistle in this memory, which means he's been a black whistle for at least that long, eight, nine years that we know of. So who knows how long he's been on this quest to become white whistle, and he's still not there. I really do hope we sort of find out one day how one gets to be a white whistle from black whistle. But for now, long process, duly noted. To finally come to theme, I mentioned already this, this whole thing about becoming or, or being worthy of the abyss. We don't yet know what the abyss as a symbol means. It probably means a lot of things. But if we suppose it means something kind of broad, like it's a symbol for truth or life itself, then becoming worthy of it or earning your way into it or succeeding in it all take on kind of some secondary meanings. Habo and Rico's attitude toward it uh, just kind of helps fill in the gaps for us a little bit. Doesn't complete the picture because it's gonna take most of the series to really figure out what sort of thematic elements are always present. But this is worth taking note of, I believe. And then also as Rico and Reg are walking away, Habo's thinking to himself, he says, after all, we're all just the netherworld's lost children. 
This actually plays very nicely with the uh, from abyss to abyss little thing I wrote earlier. One thing I am very curious about, whatever Japanese word they're translating as netherworld, I really wish I knew what cultural context that word has. Like in English, netherworld is usually kind of a stand-in for the realm of the dead, or perhaps a place of mystery or darkness. It's rarely used in any context where it has a positive connotation though. But it doesn't seem to have the same connotation in this world. At least it doesn't have like a inherently negative or uh, maybe dangerous connotation. Maybe that's the word I want. I think maybe if I knew the cultural context of whatever word they're translating, I might understand better exactly what's going on here thematically. Our fifth and final scene is very brief. Leaving Habo behind, Rico and Reg descend, and they apparently were pretty close to the second lair because they see it as soon as the clouds clear a little bit. Then they have a brief encounter with a new creature of the abyss and begin the next step of their journey. So to talk about this in brief, goal-wise, we reach the second lair. We only know of like seven total, right? So that's progress. Maybe. In fact, Reg says it best. It isn't that we've successfully escaped, isn't it rather that we're now being pursued by all kinds of things that exist outside the territory of man? It's like, yeah, we're making progress towards our big goals here, but every step of that progress comes with a price, comes with a new sense of danger and a widening of the scope of things that can go wrong. No real new conflicts here. Characterization-wise, there's really just a couple things. The first is when the clouds clear and the two of them can see the top of the second layer, and they have two different reactions. Rico immediately feels a sense of accomplishment. She's a little bit jubilant, probably feels relieved they didn't get caught, while Reg is sort of like, is that it? I don't feel that excited. I'm a little bit apprehensive about this. It's a really brief sort of snapshot at how the two of them look at their quest. Reg reinforces this at the end when he's thinking about what it will actually mean to elude pursuit. And once they get to that second lair, yeah, they've escaped their pursuers, but they've also escaped beyond the realm of being rescued. It's kind of like, yay, we got away. Oh, we got away. It'll be interesting to see as we go along if Rico becomes a little more like Reg, or if Reg becomes a little more about Rico, at least as far as their optimism versus misgivings go. World building wise, just very brief, as they're lowering down, they pass these things Rico calls a wind riding windmill, these giant kind of backwards propeller looking things. And evidently they are more than 4,000 years old. So clearly they were old even at the time the abyss was discovered. And apparently the theory is that they were used to capture updrafts. Now I'm gonna go ahead and suppose that that will turn out not to be the case if we come back to them at all. But I think it's a pretty interesting little detail to point out to us. Like maybe they are windmills, maybe there were convection currents that used to blow upwards and generate electricity or something. But I wouldn't be surprised to find out that wind riding windmill might turn out to be literal. Like there might be a point at the end of this whole show where this entire thing just kind of lifts up out of the abyss all airship style. I don't know, that's what the design of these things suggests to me like right out of the gate, uh, but I could be reaching. Finally, the only thing in dimension and theme is that another barrier has been crossed. Um, if barriers ends up being a recurring thing, this will be notable. We had a pretty big one at the end of last episode where they actually finally crossed into the abyss by themselves. And this is clearly one more barrier between what they do and don't know, where they can and can't be rescued. I suspect this kind of pattern is gonna continue. Overall in the scene, despite how short it is, I think it's kind of an important thing to the tone of the series. I mean, reaching the second layer should be this like giant star around our goal progress and how exciting it is to be making real progress this fast. 
but instead they have this encounter with one of these little creatures. They both kind of snap out of what they're feeling and decide they need to hurry on because the creature might be calling its friends. This takes what should have been this great success of them going entirely through the first layer in this one episode and gives it this note of sort of sobering reality. A little bit of dread cast over the series instead of it being a moment of celebration. I mean, this sort of note of unease that ends on is really intentional. I think they're really helping to brace us for some unfortunate things that are gonna go down. So now, as promised, we're gonna talk about the ending theme. I've got the translation that Anime Strike is using. It's actually kind of unusual to have the translation for an anime opening or ending during its original simulcast. My understanding is sometimes the rights to that translation have to be negotiated separately because the artists that create them may have a particular translator or want to oversee the translation of it first. And that may sometimes involve a separate round of negotiation for licensing. Now the song overall is very upbeat, very fanciful. The style in which it's rendered is not really animation, it's actually illustrations. And the illustrations mimic animation by having a couple of images they simply swap back and forth while having the camera sort of pan, scan, and zoom around the actual drawings. Now while this could be a purely stylistic choice, I'm gonna refer back to when I talked about the opening credits. There was one part of that that was not animated also, and it was a kind of painterly rendition of uh, what we now know as Liza. And I said then that I believe this helped illustrate the idealization that Rico has of her mother in her mind, that she's not actually fully filled in, that she doesn't know all the details about her, that she has a sort of fantastical, legendary status in her mind, rather than being a real flesh and blood person like everyone else we encounter. That same line of reasoning leads me to believe that we're getting a sanitized sort of children's storybook version of what's going on in the series to this point, and that these end credits are kind of an optimistic, safe for all audiences version of the events of the story, at least up to a certain point. In other words, the tone of the story that the illustrations in these end credits represent is somewhat disconnected from the tone of reality. Now, why might that be? We'll come back to that. Let's go through the actual images of this and uh, talk about them. It starts off with Rico and Reg, sort of at the top layer of the abyss still, almost like Rico's trying to show off the splendor of the abyss to Reg wanting him to feel the same sense of wonder that she feels. The camera then continues to move down the abyss through all these scenes as we get kind of lower and lower. Shows Rico and Reg digging up what I guess might be the star compass. There's not a lot of detail in it. Obviously he was not around for that event. It actually happened before the series even began. So this means the images in the ending credits are either not a recap of actual events or that this is them rediscovering the star compass later. But I think it's the first one. Next we have Reg leading Rico by the hand. She's looking kind of apprehensive and scared and he's reassuring. Kind of a flip-flop in their attitudes from the end of this past episode. As the camera moves rapidly down, we have two little characters kind of stick their head out into the scene, like they're looking at Rico and Reg coming down the way. Now these are the two characters that show up for less than a second in the opening. One with a white whistle, one with a blue. At this point, I'm gonna guess that the white whistle person is Ozen, and I'm gonna talk about that in speculation here at the end. Moving down, we have a moment where the crimson split jaw kind of sticks its head out. Now, I don't know if, again, this represents a retelling of the actual events, or if this is supposed to represent reaching the third layer, which is where the crimson split jaw actually comes from. But the next scene shows Reg and Rico eating what looks like the same dish from the very beginning of this episode. They're even dressed the same, with Reg having his shirt off, just like he just got out of the river. So I think that is actually calling back to that scene, and what we're seeing here is not necessarily told in order. Briefly, there's this prickly, furry-looking thing. Uh, it does not look very friendly. I'm sure we'll run into that followed by them falling down enormous leaves. And then it seems they meet our bunny girl thing. So I'm guessing we're still expecting that to happen. If these end credits are told in any kind of order at all, that's gonna come after they meet Ozen at least, and maybe immediately after they fall down some giant leaves. The bunny girl now seems to become their traveling companion, and they're guiding her along reassuringly 
While she seems to be looking a little apprehensive, this suggests to me that maybe she has never been lower than wherever it was they encountered her, and they've talked her into broadening her horizons. For some reason. I have a sequence moving down with a lot of those little five-pointed flowers. I previously referred to how often these things show up and that they probably have some kind of meaning. We just don't know what yet. And this shifts to them walking along the top of a giant plant fountain kind of thing. And they're walking under an umbrella that actually kind of looks like it's made out of roofing material or something. It looks extremely sturdy. That immediately makes me think of the iron rain that was referred to in some of Liza's notes. I don't know if you've noticed, but Reg does have an umbrella in that pack that he's carrying around, though we don't know if it's the same one we see here. Then we have Rico being kind of obnoxiously huggy onto the bunny girl, kind of like how she was to uh, Reg back in the beginning, followed by them exploring deeper into some sort of cave, and then Rico dropping some sort of long package that she's holding under her arm. I don't know what that is or why it's significant, but I'm sure it's gonna show up. Then we have a second instance of the camera sort of falling down into space and a bunch of our five-petaled white flowers. Against the darker background, they actually really look like stars. Um, I would not be surprised at all to find out that these things have star in their name, whatever these flowers are called. Until I know their name from here on out, I'm just gonna call them star flowers because that's easier to say than five pointed white flowers. Now, as our trio is falling kind of hand in hand in hand, Falling with them in slow motion is images of a few uh, relics and other kind of things we've seen on the journey. We see the unheard bell, we see the star compass, we see a blue gray egg shaped kind of thing. I'm not sure what that is. We see the umbrella we already referred to. Uh, we briefly see a mail balloon. And then finally, what I think is Liza's sort of pickaxe. I think that's what we saw earlier. There's more falling, there's more star flowers. And then because of the angle of the camera, there's a distant light that grows forward that kind of looks like the light at the end of a tunnel. This then resolves to an image of the three of them lying back in a field of star flowers, looking very content with themselves, very at peace. Our long package that she dropped has returned. And this is overwhelmingly a positive image to end these credits on. So since we do actually have lyrics to work with, let's talk about them. I'd like to point out that just like the illustrations, some of this language is very fanciful and storybook-like. The glittering waves that float in the sky. Let's bundle them up and build a rainbow bridge. I mean, that's definitely some nursery rhyme caliber stuff there. It's not all like that though. There are a couple of references to time, to past and future. The song is sung in first person, but also has a lot of second person. There's some I and we and you. So who is the I here? Who is the we? Who is the you? Now, this is being sung by the voice actresses that do Rico and Reg, and I think maybe the bunny girl too. So it's easy to assume that it's them singing it to each other. But in songwriting, like in poetry, like in other forms of fictional expression, you should not assume that the speaker is the one doing the speaking or the writing. To further expound on that, a lot of this seems like it could be about them embarking on their journey and this sort of wide-eyed optimism they have about it, as well as a determination to stick together and to make it to the end. But this could also be a song that is sung to Rico from Liza, like a parent reading a story to a child. After all, there are two different references to the past, something Reg and Rico do not share. A statement like, I am always beside you, sounds like the kind of thing you tell to someone when you're not with them. Like you're with them in spirit, or you're watching over them from afar. Now, I'm not saying that that is how this should be interpreted, but I do want to suggest the idea that this isn't necessarily about Reg and Rico and their journey and the things they feel towards each other. It could have a wider meaning than that. Finally, I want to point out that it looks like our ever-present star flowers are referred to in the actual song. Not only that, it's both the end line and in image. Now, the ending of stories in general, but especially poetry and songs, kind of have extra emphasis. 
kind of like everything before it builds up to give that its impact. So even if we didn't have any clue at all that these flowers may mean more than they seem on the surface or have some extra symbolic value, these end credits are really drawing a really big circle around that idea. Ultimately though, these lyrics are translations. It's not native Japanese. Japanese is full of context-specific references, uh, double meanings, things that we can't necessarily duplicate exactly in English. So your mileage may vary. So then let's take our bird's eye view at our goals and conflicts and all that. Goal-wise, I believe there are two big sort of steps here. One is getting to the second layer, that's obvious progress. I said before that the map of the abyss gives us lots of sort of intermediate goalposts to work on. This lets us know that the story has progress. So we cross one layer kind of off the list. This comes with all kinds of consequences, but we've talked about that. The other really big one is the change in how we understand Rico's main goal of finding her mother. It looks like she's not going to seize on every single opportunity to advance that cause. We don't yet know what, if anything, would make her abandon that goal completely, but it's no longer outside the realm of possibility. If she does make some large alteration in that goal in the future, at least we've been given a hint that that is possible. Oh, I'm losing my voice. Um, we do have a new goal for Rico. Uh, it's gonna be relatively short term, I think. And that is to meet Ozen. Despite being warned off by Habo, you just know the way Rico is. She's absolutely gonna rush headlong toward this opportunity. So whether it's wise or not, it is gonna be driving the plot. So it absolutely will deserve a slot on our goal tracker. It's worth pointing out again, though, that what will not go on the goal tracker is find the star compass. It seems really that that will come back into their life somehow without them actively seeking it. We'll see exactly what that entails. Moving on to conflicts, the addition of Ozen as a goal has a conflict of its own. Whatever it is they should be wary of is going to bear down on them. I think there's no way there will be no consequences to that encounter. We also got reminded of Rico's physical limitations. In addition to being told about something called diving illness, it remains to be seen if this is fundamentally different from the Curse of the Abyss, but I'm guessing that it is. The in-episode conflict of leader pursuing them, or the team pursuing them, seems to have been completed. I'm still not 100% sure that leader is really the architect here, but as far as everyone involved knows, they've gotten away scot-free, come what may. Now there is essentially no progress at all on all the conflicts we already have on the board. I suspect some of these, especially the surface conflicts, if they get resolved at all, will only come back into the story towards the very end. In our characterization category, we actually had quite a few big moments this episode. We actually got to see that Reg and Rico do have a lot of capability as far as surviving and thriving in the abyss goes. The speed at which they could descend, the ingenuity of using the arms as sort of a tripwire to let them sleep, the ability to catch and cook their food and make fire with no help, and the dealing with the silk fang are all marks in their favor. But of course, Habo being able to catch up to them with relative ease and Rico's physical exhaustion help remind us that we're not out of the woods showing that Rico can still do some reckless things like losing the star compass and that Reg is not infallible in his attempt to catch it also keeps us grounded in the fact that these are children, they're not going to be perfect, things are going to be beyond their capability. We also still sort of have this advancement of leader and a little bit of mystery around him. Like maybe I'm being silly for being suspicious of the whole letter, but I'm still not entirely sure how this jives with his actions to this point. If that's all exactly as it seems on the surface, then I think maybe Habo and the way he acted in this episode is supposed to mirror how leader feels about everything, that they've done their best to prepare Rico for this, knowing she would eventually go down there, knowing that the allure of chasing after her mother would be too strong, and they've come to decide that events being what they are, this is the time to let her go. Let's test her, help her, make sure she's ready, but ultimately let her pursue her path. There's obviously a lot of conflicting emotions to this. The scene with Habo is fantastic and letting us, the audience, feel the same way that he's feeling. 
The last real moment of note, I think, is that second when Rico and Reg are first seeing the second layer and how they have very different reactions to it. I think they will frequently be emotional foils for each other as the series progresses. And this is just one more example that helps remind us of each of their differing outlooks on this adventure, on the dangers they're facing, on what each step forward or backward represents. In world building, we once again had lots of little details filled in. The series continues to impress as far as that goes. All that information we learned about Ozen was very interesting, but because we're going to get those details filled out soon enough, I'm not going to dwell on them anymore here. I actually find the future significance of the force field and the sunlight and all that, as well as the way the star compass may work, to be actually more intriguing. And I also think the answers to those questions are probably further away uh, in time. Finally, we've got our good buddy theme. Now I talked about that there's sort of a motif of barriers and crossing barriers and being held back by barriers in this series, but I don't know what that means yet or how it ties into the other things we've observed. I really just wanted to go ahead and bring it up now in this episode because I don't know where we're going with it. I don't want to come out of left field if a lot of these things suddenly start to make sense. The other thing that's quasi new, this becoming worthy or being worthy of the abyss, that whole idea, I suspect that will jive with this whole idea of the truth needing to be excavated that we talked about earlier. That a lot of this journey is about a journey towards their past, towards some sort of truth, into mystery, uh, into darkness. There's a lot about the abyss itself that is about proving yourself, proving your worthiness. And I think Rico and Reg's journey in itself is one of these testing, proving grounds kind of things. I added a little line to our history repeating theme, which hasn't actually come up much in the last couple episodes, but I added this part about history repeating versus fighting fate. Now, what I mean by that is there is a lot about Rico's story that seems like she's fated to go after her mother, that she's fated to be one of these people who dives into the abyss. And it may be that her story ultimately is about history repeating, that she's following in her parents' footsteps like the other orphans in the orphanage are doing. Habo for sure, and maybe also Leader, believe this is Rico's fate, that she's kind of doing what she is supposed to be doing. But the way that Rico obviously has some conditions on that goal suggests that she may be able to break this cycle of history repeating of being bound to her fate. Reg, if you'll remember, still has an unknown goal, some reason he came to the surface. So he actually may have his own sort of fate that's driving him that he doesn't even quite understand. And there may come a point in the future where he makes a choice where he fulfills that fate or bucks it. To go along with this idea, I want to compare the narration from the end of last episode to the beginning of this one. I mentioned before the narration was different, even though the scenes were the same. So let's talk about that. The end narration for the last episode was for those who offer up their bodies and challenge it, the abyss is said to provide all, life and death, curses and blessings, all of it. At the end of their journey, what will they come to finally choose? Will that be determined by the will of the netherworld? Or will it be determined solely by those who challenge it? So that was last episode. At the beginning of this episode, however, the narration says, These new adventurers, welling up inside them is courage, wit, and curiosity. On their path, Hope and despair alike are lying in wait. All right, so those are slightly different messages. The first one seems to be very much about choosing your fate, while the second one is suggesting that hope and despair are absolutely in their future. That first narration talking about the abyss containing all, life and death, curses and blessings, sounds very much like it's just describing a microcosm of life itself, the journey of one's life. And this at least is mirrored in the second one, suggesting adventurers embarking on a new journey where there will be both hope and despair, which also could be the journey of life, being born and having to go through all of it. But that first one has the second part. At the end of their journeys, so death maybe, what will they come to finally choose? 
Will that be determined by the will of the netherworld, or will it be determined solely by those who challenge it? Now this suggests to me that the abyss has some sort of agenda, or has something it wants to happen, or some fate it itself is set on, and that those who descend into the abyss have a choice between adhering to the will of the netherworld, or challenging the netherworld, and making their fate their own. If you think the abyss might, among other things, be a big metaphor for life, and the journey down into it, a journey through one's life stages, then the way this is phrased could be read as an argument of those who believe in fate versus those who believe you make your own fate. Now this ultimately is why I decided to add on to this theme, history repeating versus fighting your fate. Way too early to decide if this may be even the central theme of this series, but I think that's a real possibility right now. There's been a lot of sort of mirrored stories so far. The more times we get that, the more times our characters get to choose to repeat or alter how things would normally play out, the clearer the picture will become. All right, that's our five out of the way. Let's talk about what to watch for. Ozen and the meeting with her seems kind of inevitable. So we're watching for that to happen, seeing what kind of events actually lead up to that. And then of course, watching how it alters the course of the story, maybe the trajectory of Rico and Reg, or maybe even their characterization. This may be the actual peril for Rico. I think we need to be watching for someone to be in possession of the star compass, someone finding it as it traveled its way down. And I will not be surprised if that person actually has a little information about it and how it works that they impart to Reg and Rico, and therefore to us. Um, I'm going to be watching for some sort of confirmation that Leader is the one that gave them Liza's notes and the little note. Like, I know I'm hung up on this, but even Habo points out that it's odd that he didn't come to see them off, but oh wait, that would mean he would catch you, but he still kind of points out that it's, eh, it's a little unusual. We're still watching for them to run into our little bunny girl. I had guessed that might happen this episode, but I was wrong. But I was right about a third party being sort of a constant in this. I don't think it'll be Reg and Rico for significant portions, just because it's more interesting when they are interacting in their different ways with some third party. It was Habo this episode, so even though I was wrong about who it was, I wasn't wrong about the fact that it was going to happen. And I suspect it will be Ozen, maybe next episode, maybe the very end of it or something like that but certainly in the near future. And then whenever they leave her or however that works, then maybe they run into our little bunny girl. She'll eventually have a name. I just don't know what it is yet. I'm also gonna be watching for if and when Rico does try to send up a mail balloon or otherwise communicate directly with the surface. Because I can't imagine that if it's the guild running that, they're just gonna be like, oh, here's a message from these people who ran away and broke protocol and we started to search for. Let's by all means just deliver their messages unread to the other children of the orphanage. Just can't imagine that's gonna be the way it goes down. So I'm definitely watching for that to be some sort of bonus complication to all this. And then finally, we're gonna be watching for more of these little repressed memory things that Reg had. Like maybe they're gonna become more frequently as we go deeper, or maybe they're inspired by specific things he sees or experiences, and we'll have to pick up on that pattern later. Either way, clearly this is a thing we need to start looking out for, start expecting to happen, and get ready to try to figure out what it is when it does happen. All right, finally, speculation. All right. Got a lot of sort of Ozen speculation that I'm gonna throw all together here. Between the stuff that Habo said, the images in the opening and the ending credits, I'm going to guess that Ozen is the person featured in both with the black and white hair, that she has some sort of little girl in what looks like a maid outfit with a blue whistle, that they live in that little green pod thing that shows up in the opening and the end credits, and that that is either the seeker camp or part of it, and that we're ultimately gonna kind of see the inside of that little house or the camp. We're gonna spend some time there. 
Now to guess why Rico should be wary of Ozen? Well, since Habo's not warning them against something directly or some kind of threat to their person, and because he mentions it's something personal for Rico, I am guessing that Ozen has a lot of information about Liza. They obviously knew each other pretty well, both white whistles that were active at the same time, helps her get her daughter to the surface, which was obviously a big deal, is the one that has Liza's notes and the white whistle, whether being entrusted to her or otherwise making its way to her. I think it's fairly likely that Ozen has information about Liza that Rico's not gonna like. Any guesses I make to the content of that is gonna be really just wild speculation, but it might be some sort of character things or some dubious decisions she made. If she's at all like her daughter, she's probably done some very rash things. And she may even share some sort of the reasoning why Liza left and never came back for her daughter. She might get the motives wrong or something like that, and that might be what's distressing to Rico. But I definitely believe that some sharing of things about Liza and that history is gonna be one of the things that Ozen does. Relatedly, I don't know if we'll meet Ozen in the next episode, but if we do, I suspect that'll definitely stretch into the episode after that. There's so many little ingredients to what she could do to the story that I don't think it'll just be a one-off scene. I think we'll get some real time here, some real characterization, some real new additions to our conflict. I've mentioned some other speculation already. We run into someone that has the star compass. They're gonna tell us some more about it. Uh, the wind riding windmills will come back into the story at some point. My crazy guess is that they make the whole thing fly, but that's probably too crazy. Either way, we haven't seen the last of them. Finally, I have a really crazy theory, and it's gonna take me a second to articulate it, but I wanna go ahead and put it out there now. Um, I think it may turn out that Liza is Reg, sort of. Like, maybe not directly, but that maybe some part of her lives on in him, or he has a repository of her memories, or that she is somehow fundamentally connected to him. Like, I don't literally mean that he is Liza, literally. But there's a few little things in the way they mirror each other that I can't help but be bothered by. I mean, if he's not directly her, even in some small manner, that I'm really, really sure that she is responsible for him coming up. But part of the way that they are both narrators in a sense, Liza, I think it's Liza, narrating the more sort of traditional narrator, adding extra sort of thematic or symbolic language on top of what's happening, while Reg's doing a little more ruminating, reflecting on what the current situation may mean. But they're definitely the only two people who do this. I want to point out, and it may not matter, but we've never seen Liza's face. Or rather, we've seen parts of it, but never her eyes. Like she's always intentionally shown from behind, shown with her hat down, shown in sort of an illustrative, indistinct manner. She's still this kind of unknowable, not quite filled in character. Now she's that way in Rico's mind because she doesn't remember her and therefore doesn't have the full picture, if you will. But I'm really starting to feel like that's never gonna change unless it's right at the end. And I'm starting to think Reg might be her or some part of her, uh, at least by proxy. Now, I don't know if I'm making too much out of the narration thing. I'd like to point out that we've never really heard Rico's thoughts, even though she seems to be the main character. I mean, us hearing Reg's thoughts is fairly common. We got to hear Habo's thoughts this episode. We got to hear Nato's thoughts last episode. But Rico's thoughts and feelings are always just expressed, either in the way she's acting or the things she's saying. We've had some flashbacks and, and her talking over the cooking montage, but that's not the same really as her sort of thinking or narrating things out loud. 
we don't seem to be privy to her thoughts the way we are to Riggs. I mean, this again also sort of suggests that Liza is dead because a narrator that watches the whole story and speaks about it in sort of broad terms is the kind of thing that happens to someone who's not in the story anymore. Usually the only exception to that is if someone is retelling a story that they are in, looking back on it from years in the future. So it may not be that it's supposed to be Liza speaking, but actually Rico from the future talking about this entire ordeal. But uh, eh, who knows? It's fun to speculate. That'll wrap it up for this one. This has been a long one, I know. Next time we will try out our short looks. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully it will not be the vlog version of a dumpster fire. And I'm hoping it will have the added side benefit of us speeding up our production. Thanks again so much for watching everything. I've really enjoyed the comments people have made. Um, it's been really encouraging. I'm, I'm really hoping to get better at this and uh, I really like doing it. So, until next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.